Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is Supreme Court Preview with my guests, Alex Klein and Brandon Hasbrook. We'll go through some of the cases we are focusing on this term and theorize a little bit about the composition of the court. I'll start by having them introduce themselves. First, Alex. Hi, uh, I'm Alex Klein. I'm an assistant professor of law at St. Mary's University School of Law in San Antonio, and I teach and research uh, topics relating to criminal procedure, criminal law, and capital punishment. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's exciting to see you again. Alex used to work with us at WNL, so we, we I miss know, her I miss, greatly. We miss. I miss you too. Yeah. All right, now Brandon. Hi, I'm Brandon Hasbrick. I'm an associate professor of law at Washington and Lee University School of Law. I write in areas of abolition, movement, law, and then the criminal legal system. And Alex, I do miss you, but it is a privilege to rock the mic with both you and Carlos. You put us in his room and fire's going to get started. So let's go, Carlos. <laughs> All right. So Brandon, I'm going to start with you. And when I wrote this question, I didn't know what was going to happen yesterday. Um, and so my first question is, do you think Justice Brown Jackson will change the way the court deliberates and its outcomes? Sure. So let me set the stage first. The Supreme Court term, uh, October 2022 term, is set up for a Halloween massacre. And the central question we must confront, I think, is this the end for American justice and democracy? Why anti-democratic litigants are pushing the conservative supermajority on the court to slash through a whole host of protections Americans thought they could safely enjoy. After June's run of anti-democratic decisions, this might feel like something of a sequel, but that's just par for the course with horror movies. I want to briefly discuss two of these cases the court already heard or argument on, the environment. The court's first victim is likely going to be the planet. The Clean Water Act protects wetlands through ambiguous language that the Environmental Protection Agency and Army Corps of Engineers have traditionally been allowed to interpret broadly. Uh, in the case heard on Monday, second, the EPA, landowners are challenging the agency's power to protect those wetlands. If the EPA loses its regulatory authority over wetlands, our water quality, wildlife habitats, and ability to protect ourselves from hurricanes will all suffer. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson made this connection, asking Sackett's attorney, quote, why would Congress draw the coverage line between abutting wetlands and neighboring wetlands when the objective of the statute is to ensure the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters? With precision and confidence, Jackson punctured legal theories designed to let landowners destroy crucial wetlands on their property. On this point, it is worth noting that the Sackets are represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation, an innocuously named organization that consistently fights for an extreme conception of property rights, one that leaves little room for the government to remedy harms 
the use of property causes to others. Voting rights. Next, the court, which we heard yesterday, is going to pursue some of the last remaining federal protections for voting rights. Chief Justice John Roberts has a long history of attacking the Voting Rights Act, and Merrill v. Milligan gives him another chance to undermine our primary legislative protection for voting rights. Serial voting rights offender Alabama appealed a district court decision that, let, that held its congressional districts impermissibly favored its white majority. This case gives Roberts and his allies an opportunity to further undermine the VRA Section 2 protection against election rules with racially discriminatory effects. If the Voting Rights Act is further gutted, white supremacist legislators will be further empowered to entrench their political power and exclude black and brown people from the political process. Or argument was heard yesterday, as you mentioned, Carlos, and Justice Jackson was absolutely brilliant. Her statements and questions got at the heart of the issues. Quote, we are talking about a situation in which race has infused the voting system, unquote. So should there be a race conscious remedy? Justice Jackson employing abolition constitutionalism argued yes, saying the 14th Amendment was drafted to give a constitutional foundation for a piece of legislation that used race conscious remedies to make free man equal to white citizens. So how would the Voting Rights Act race conscious remedies possibly be unconstitutional, she asked. To your question, can Justice Katanji Brown Jackson change the likely outcomes? Likely no in the environment case, okay? Possible in the voting rights case in the likely deciding vote? Carlos, your favorite justice, Clarence, my wife, was a mastermind overturning the lawful 2020 election, Thomas, okay? He's the likely vote. Why? Because he has a history based on the standards of a review. Not that he agrees with Justice Katanji Brown Jackson's argument, but the, the level of review here is clear error. And he has a history saying it does not clear error in the district court's findings. He's okay with letting it be. He did that in 2016, for an example, in an opinion that Justice Gregory wrote while I was clerking with him that ended up going to the Supreme Court and Justice Kagan wrote the opinion It's called Harris v. McCrory. He agreed with Kagan based on the standard review, okay, not necessarily the actual substantive argument. But assume Justice Kataji Brown-Jackson is in this set in both, which I think is a better assumption. She still gives us so much hope. In her question, she's employing what I've written extensively about, that is abolition constitutionalism. And that theory at its core empowers us to redress the lingering evils of slavery and demands that we do so. I think having her as a champion for abolition constitutionalism is game changing. She's also brilliant, right? She's ready to fight. And she has Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Kagan standing beside her. Speaking of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, one of my favorite justices, she took a little to task in the voting rights case. She all but told uh, everyone listening that Justice Alito gave the game away because there is no such thing as race neutrality in the Voting Rights Act. Okay, I'll let you go, Alex. I'm good. <laughs> all right, Alex, what do you think about Justice Jackson? Yeah, so I, I was also listening to the oral arguments yesterday. Um, and you know, it's it's not a surprise at all, given, you know, Justice Brown Jackson's experience and accomplishments, how engaged and active and detail oriented and how she went right to the heart of 
of some of the issues in the case. Um, she was just incredibly well prepared and really focused. And I, I, I think Alabama's attorney was having kind of a hard time with her because she was so good at finding those weak spots and arguments. So I think she's going to be a real asset in terms of thinking of, of, you know, making parties work for these cases, like really do your work, do good legal work. Um, who knows, you know, our arguments are already typically quite good. Maybe they'll even get better with that kind of really intense attention to detail. I think it's fantastic. Um, so I think also her experience really matters. Um, you know, she has a realistic perspective, I think, of the criminal legal system, maybe compared with other of her colleagues, because nobody has the same kind of experience that she does, with the possible exception, right, of Justice Sotomayor, who was a prosecutor and so has actually worked hands-on in, you know, what the criminal system is, legal system is, what it looks like. Um, Justice Brown Jackson was a public defender, and that's an entirely different perspective. Um, so I think that's going to be really important in the way the court thinks about and addresses these kinds of cases. Um, like, you know, like Brandon, I was really intrigued and encouraged to see her bringing up the origins and, and the history surrounding the 14th Amendment and the fact that this does have, you know, a remedial purpose to it, which is something that the court has, I guess, flirted, flirted with, but they'd really sort of thought about it, you know, decades ago, briefly, right, it came up and then it, they've sort of tried to smooth over it and bury it. Um, and so I think having someone on the court who's willing to point out, actually, no, this, this is actually, you know, you want to do history. Fine. Let's do history. Here's the 14th amendment. Um, I, I think that's really important. Um, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure that she'll change outcome, the outcomes of cases given the current composition, but I think what we're going to see are really thoughtful, persuasive opinions regardless of whether she's in the majority or the, or the dissent. Um, and if she brings that kind of energy she brought to oral argument to the opinions she's writing, you know, I, there's someone who's going to be poking holes um, in, in some of her colleagues' opinions. And, you know, her dissents are important, even if they are dissents. They lay foundations for a lot of future cases. And you might even see a, a kind of like Justice Thurgood Marshall, Justice William Brennan sort of energy between her and, and Justice Sotomayor, Right. Marshall and Brennan wrote a lot of really important dissents that that argued for really significant civil rights and criminal procedure protection. So we may still see some of that conscience of the court kind of energy. You know, I just think anytime someone does the teaching that is necessary with the Reconstruction Amendments, it's important. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I write on I write on 14th Amendment with personhood stuff all the time. And it, it's and 13th Amendment is, is also underutilized. And 15th Amendment is actually underutilized. Um, and you know, there's this disregard since Reconstruction of the Reconstruction Amendments. And I would love to see a justice finally bring us back into focus, which is what I think she is doing. Um, I appreciated the lesson she gave yesterday. I mean, and I often cite oral argument in, in articles, um, in part because I write on corporate stuff and the court gets it wrong so often. Um, so because I'm citing to the oral arguments, I appreciate what they are signaling to and what they're saying out loud all the time. All right. So my next question for y'all, and either of you can go first. Do you think the attention the court has received post Dobbs will impact how they rule this term? Are they going to behave go, themselves? Yeah, yeah, I'll go first only because uh, I know Alex uh, is going to do this much better than me. I don't want to follow Alex. <laughs> okay. So let me give you the straight answer. No, Carlos, 
Why, <laughs> Carlos? You didn't attend any events in the court's legitimacy tour this summer. It's Coachella for lawyers. That is every year. Black, brown, poor, disabled, queer women hold their breaths for the Supreme Court decisions in late spring, early summer to see what's what rights will be gutted, diminished, or constitutionally forgotten. And every summer following these decisions, the justice go justice go on tour to tell the public why they are legitimate and why we need to respect the legitimacy, and that it's very dangerous to even question the legitimacy, then nothing is done. So I've written for the Boston Globe on this legitimacy point, if you want to read my thoughts further, but this ritual needs to end. It doesn't have to be this way. It's not too late to stop this onslaught. Congress has the power to set the limits of the court's jurisdiction, court's jurisdiction and the standards it must apply in review. Congress can expand the Supreme Court and lower courts. If we want to preserve our democracy and the rights it protects, we must persuade Congress to act and elect a Congress willing to do so. Congress, do something. Biden, do something. The remedy for all this anti-democracy must be the unqualified reaffirmation of democracy throughout our society, including our courts. As Professor Nico Bowie said, for democracy to exist anywhere, it must exist everywhere. I don't have faith in Congress or the executive branch. No. So, <laughs> so we, we know how I feel about that. All right, Alex, what do you think? Are they going to behave? Are they going to stop taking away our rights? Um, well, so here are my thoughts. I don't think with the current composition, the court's going to change the trajectory it's on. I would be very surprised. Um, they may get more defensive in some opinions and they may, I don't know, I guess work harder, right? Or at least try to work harder um, in the way that they structure and frame out the arguments. They've taken a lot of critiques in, about their legitimacy and they're also sort of bickering with each other in public a little bit over it. Right. I'm sure you all saw justice. The news where Justin K Justice Kagan made an opinion saying that the court's legitimacy could be at risk if it looks like the court's imposing political preferences. And then Chief Justice Roberts said that people shouldn't question the court's legitimacy if they don't like what the court has to say in their opinions. Right. But that's that's not necessarily the full picture. Right. We have there are a lot of concerns about I think a lot of people are concerned and I have concerns about the court's sort of disinterest in um, following stare decisis. Um, and the court's, I guess, intense activism, even potentially when it's not warranted. So like this Merrill versus Milligan case, they argued yesterday, a three-judge panel in Alabama found that there was a racial gerrymander and the court let the maps go into effect anyway. Um, you know, they the 11th Circuit, this one was very recent, the 11th Circuit upheld a stay, which is very surprising, of an execution for Alan Miller. Um, over problems with a choice of method of execution. Miller had picked nitrogen hypoxia. Alabama says, oh, we're actually not ready to do that. And the district court found that Miller was extremely credible um, and consistently presented evidence that, that that's what he picked. And the Supreme Court just lifted the stay and let the execution go forward, um, right? Mm. And so there's, yeah, there's impatience certainly in some of these kinds of method of execution cases. But you know, there are actual factual questions here and they're like, nope, let's do this. Let's go forward. And then I mean, Alan Miller's execution was called off anyway because Alabama wasn't actually capable of executing him competently. So, 
you know, no, I don't think so. I think what we're going to see is maybe a dissent that's more willing to call these sorts of things out, right? Um, you know, it's happened in the past. Um, the majority, the dissent certainly did that in in Dobbs. And, you know, we, we may see something like more opinions sort of like that, or like Justice Marshall's dissent in Payne versus Tennessee some decades ago, where he pointed out that literally the only change in the law was the court's composition. Um, so I, I don't think things are going to change um, in the way the court's approaching problems. They seem to be very willing to go for things without necessarily reasoning them through as well as they should be. Yeah, no, Carla, listen, <laughs> there's more of a Harper on, on the docket, right? Which essentially would give Republicans uh, power to overturn the 2024 election, okay? If the Supreme Court agrees with uh, the theory being advanced in that case. There's the affirmative action cases in which the affirmative actions, um, you know, essentially is going to be gutted. There's colonialism on the docket this year, which colonialism and kind of the view of colonialism is going to be advanced by the Supreme Court in the Bracken case. So it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And this idea about legitimacy, and I know the justices are bickering a little bit in public, but every year is the same song and dance. And every year we're like, all right, what's next? And something has to be done. Well, and I think we can go back, you know, I remember Bush v. Gore in 2000, right? We can go back that far with the court being political and illegitimate. And it's just gotten progressively worse in the last 20 plus years. Um, so I, I agree. We're not going to change their minds. I just have to figure out which country I'm moving to and to see if I can get asylum somewhere uh, because I, I don't have faith either. All right, now let's get into some specific cases. Um, and what I like about this portion, Alex and Brandon have highlighted some cases that maybe y'all aren't paying attention to because the affirmative action cases are so hot and the voting rights cases are so hot, but there are other things the Supreme Court is trying to take away from you too. So Alex, let's start with you. Um, you want to talk about the case Reed v. Gertz and let us know why you're focusing on that this term and, and what that case is about. Sure. So Rodney Reed is a black man who was sentenced to death in Texas for the 1986 of state uh, 1986 murder of Stacy Stites, who was a 19 year old white woman. Um, so Reed's case has been ongoing for a, a really significant time. And, and since his conviction, there has been a lot of really significant and compelling evidence that actually suggests that Reed could be innocent. Um, some of this has come to light since his conviction. Some of it was present um, you know, at the time and, and just wasn't necessarily explored as thoroughly by the police when they were investigating. So there's some questionable medical evidence about the time of death and then the state timeline of when the crime happened. Um, you know, experts have said that the time of death the state argues for is actually inconsistent with the state of Stites' body. Um, mm. And there's some also questionable medical evidence about um, some of the, the DNA evidence that was found at the scene that linked Reed to it. Um, Reed had said that he was having a consensual sexual relationship with Stites, and there were apparently several witnesses who confirmed that, um, including a statement by Stites' fiance that he was angry at Stites because she was having an affair with a black man. Um, that was not the language he used, but um, he was certainly furious about it, right, uh, according to one of the witnesses. So there's some, some questionable medical evidence and timing. Um, there's also a lot of other stuff. Police may not have investigated Stites' fiance well enough. Um, 
he made inconsistent statements at different times. Um, and, you know, like I said, there's, so there's, there's all this evidence suggesting it. So what this comes down to is DNA testing. So most states have laws that let people who are in prison seek post-conviction DNA testing of evidence in certain circumstances. Um, and Texas, this is where Rodney Reed was sentenced to death. Um, Texas has one of these laws. And this is really, really important because post-conviction DNA testing has helped hundreds of wrongful convictions be overturned, right? This is this is really significant. Um, but it can be really difficult to get your petition for post-conviction DNA testing through. So in 2011, the Supreme Court decided a very important case called Skinner versus Schweitzer. And what they said was that if a person was denied post-conviction DNA testing under a state law, they can bring suit in federal court under an important federal civil rights statute, 42 USC 1983, and argue that the state statute basically was so it was made it so difficult for them to get testing that it denied them procedural due process. So there are a number of items that were found um, at the crime scene that hadn't been tested for DNA, including the murder weapon, mm-hmm. um, which was a belt that Stites had been strangled with. That was not tested. Um, they didn't test this belt for DNA evidence at all. And so you can look at this and say, okay, um, you know, based on the the force of the strangulation, which I won't get too much into because I not you know not everybody uh, deals with the gross stuff I do in my research. Um, but based on on the force of this, the perpetrator's DNA could likely be on this belt, right? We shed DNA on our when we touch things. Our hands are are constantly shedding DNA. Our skin cells too. Um, So there's a number of things that Reed would like to have tested, right? Because if someone else's DNA turns up on this belt, then that arguably suggests that Reed wasn't there, right? And it lends some force to Reed's argument that he and Stites were actually in a relationship, which is something a number of witnesses have said too. So Reed filed a motion in state court in Texas asking to test the murder weapon and a number of other things that were found at the scene. Um, He lost the motion in state court, and he appealed all the way up to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Okay, so Reed loses his motion again at the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, They they put these sorts of barriers in place, including statements that, you know, Reed had to show that the, that they had to show that the evidence wasn't contaminated, and apparently the way the state was storing the evidence may have contaminated it. Um, But So Reed lost. So he filed this a federal lawsuit in district court saying that the Texas law denied him procedural due process, right? That these barriers that it set were just too unfair. Um, And what the Fifth Circuit said was that Reed had sued too late. So basically, Mm -hmm. they said that Reed should have sued immediately after the Texas trial court denied his motion for DNA testing, even though he could and did appeal the decision. He should have sued right away. Um, and Reed says, no, right. The the appropriate time is to sue after the appeal, because if the state trial court messed up in the way it interpreted the statute, that gives the Texas court of criminal appeals a chance to correct it. And state courts are supposed to be the authoritative, you know, bodies that construct and interpret state law. Um, and so yes, this case sounds very sort of niche, um, and kind of a procedural case, right? But it's a really important case because states should be able to interpret their own statutes. And what happens is under the Fifth Circuit is that you end up with this sort of weird parallel set of proceedings on really similar issues 
happening in two different courts. And then the federal court is, is arguably quite likely to say, well, let's wait and see what the state court is doing, right? Because they don't know what the Texas, you know, the, the state's appellate courts are going to do with it. Um, so they're going to have to hold and wait. And so it creates this potential for duplicative litigation and, and frankly, more litigation, which the court, the Supreme Court really doesn't like in capital cases. They want to, you know, zip you through that process and and execute people and make sure that states can execute people quite quickly. Um, and they've been very blunt about that in, in recent years in litigation about methods of execution. Um, so that's that's sort of what's happening here and, and sort of what the stakes are. And this is interesting to me because it's a procedural case. It's not about innocence. It's not about ineffective assistance of counsel. Yep. Um, this is procedure. And, and I, I always emphasize to my students, you know, the procedure matters. And this is why, um, you know, if, if his attorneys had not appealed properly, you know, if the court decides, okay, you followed the incorrect procedure, it doesn't matter whether he's innocent or guilty or not, because mm-hmm. the procedure is, is bad. So what are your predictions for the outcome of this one? What do you think? Okay, so here's what I think should happen, um, which is that the court should say that the time to sue in federal court doesn't start until after the state court proceedings finish, right? I mean, that's just, that's really consistent with, um, you know, the court's expressed preference for federalism, letting states have their say, letting states control and make decisions about their own judicial process. It just makes sense. Um, In my more optimistic moments, um, I think Reed could win. Um, last term, for example, a, a person on death row won his case because otherwise he might have totally been barred from litigating. The 11th Circuit had constructed his method of execution, um, his challenge to a method of execution as a second habeas because he was in Georgia. Georgia only has one method of execution, and you can't challenge a method of execution in a way that would invalidate your sentence. And the 11th Circuit said, well, Georgia doesn't have any alternative methods of execution, so he's obviously invalidating it. And the Supreme Court, it was not unanimous, it was divided, but they did say no. Um, so maybe we have enough votes for that, even with the court's sort of hostility towards post-conviction review kind of claims. On the other hand, I do worry about this pattern that I've seen with the court, which is they let certain claims go forward, right? So like that case I mentioned, the Skinner case, they say, oh, you can make these claims, cool. Um, but then they undermine the process and the procedure around the claims so that it's sort of meaningless. So, for example, a number of years ago, the Supreme Court decided a case that said a person in prison could bring a claim that his trial counsel was ineffective for the first time in federal court, especially when his state appellate counsel was also ineffective, which is really bad luck in many senses of the word, right? Um, so, you know what, you can take this case to federal court when your state trial and your state appellate counsel were both terrible um, and made serious mistakes. And then last term, in a case called Shin versus Ramirez, the court didn't overturn that press, that case, but they said that you can't actually develop that evidence in federal court, that federal courts can't have an evidentiary hearing over it. So I'm not sure what you do at that point, right? You can bring a claim, but you can't develop any evidence for it. Um, And Justice Thomas said that doing so would actually be an affront to the state interest in settled convictions, right? So finality above all. Um, And I'm worried that Reed could come out like this, right? Yay, you get to sue. 
oh, but not not here, and we're going to have limited opportunities to litigate. Um, and it's just sort of reflective of the court's more recent inconsistent relationship with federalism, which is that states get to have a say right until they do something that the court doesn't like them doing. This is a very important point that I want to emphasize that, that Alex said. Uh, you know, when people think Republican, when they think conservative, they think states' rights. But there have been several opinions over the years that are not states' rights, right? And, and it's often done for the purpose of infringing on the rights of human beings. That is when that is when suddenly the court and, and, and conservatives aren't states' rights anymore. So I wanted, wanted to highlight that. All right. I know Brandon's itching to <laughs> Really, I'm itching. Um, <laughs> you know, and let's make this a little bit more conversational. Because I think, Carl, I take your point about procedure and how important it is. But I think there's another side of procedure. Indeed, there's a dark side of procedure. And that is, it is a building block to the foundation of the carceral state. And indeed, it allows uh, essentially racism to continue to permeate, especially when you have cases like this case. Okay. So Alex, what's your expertise? Again, remind the listeners what your expertise is, Alex. Um, I am a, a I ex- expert on the death penalty. I Okay. And what's this case about, Alex? <laughs> like what's the outcome in this case? What was he sentenced to? Read. No, death. Yeah, yeah. okay. So we're dealing with literally someone's liberty interest. Indeed, their 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 ability to live, to literally to breathe, okay? And what I think is important to highlight in a case like this is race. Okay, race is essentially the room that filters all decisions in the criminal legal system, okay? And Rodney reads a black man, as Alex said, the victim, well, victim, okay? In this case is a white woman. The person who actually was murdered is a white woman. Now there is an alternative suspect in this case where there's significant evidence against this alternative suspect. Is that right, Alex? Um, yeah, now he's never been, you know, convicted or, or even charged with this offense, right? So we've got But who is that person? Okay. At least there's some evidence. Ah, so uh, Stites's fiance it was uh, the suspect. He was he's a, a white man. Um, he was a police officer at the time. Uh, he has is no longer. He was since convicted of the kidnapping and sexual assault of uh, a person while he was on duty. Okay, all right. So we have an alternative suspect, and indeed, alternative based on some evidence where he told a, a, a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. Right. While I guess what in prison that quote, I had to kill my beep. I'm not going to say the N word loving fiance, unquote. Okay, so you have this evidence that he admits to killing his fiance. Okay, now, Alex, if you know on the top of your head, uh, we could all probably just guess. Let me just ask you this in the Reed case. uh, What did his jury look like? Did they look like me and Carlos? Were people like me and Carlos on that jury? Um, so I'm not sure off the top. No, of no, I'll tell you the answer. No, no, the answer is no. It was all white. <laughs> it was all white. So th- this is what I'm trying to say in terms of like how procedure essentially masks what's really happening here. Like this case at its heart is about the criminal legal system and how racist it really is. Okay, you had other evidence that was excluded. That there was, you know, that they, he was indeed engaged in a relationship with the woman who was murdered. 
Okay, there was evidence by her friends that they were in, because only evidence against Reed was that his sperm was found in a body. Well, they were in a relationship. That obviously answers that question, right? There was an alternative suspect with a significant evidence, including what Alex brought up is the actual murder weapon itself. What DNA do we have on that murder weapon? It never was tested. Is it the fiancés, for an example, okay? And all that's stopping this case right now in its tracks is what... Alex said procedure. When's when's the clock gonna start, right? Like when's it start or not? And I will add this, which I think is important for our viewers to, to know. Okay. The overwhelming majority of incarcerated persons exonerated through DNA evidence since introduction in 1989 have been people of color, primarily black men. So I'll end on that note. So when we ask what are these cases really about, because it's it's similar to the case I'm talking about next, race and racism. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, one reason I emphasize procedure to my students, you know, and also, you know, judicial clerkships and, uh, and taking prosecutor jobs and trying to get on, you know, low level benches as an attorney um, is because the person who decides what that jury looks like, the person who's hearing these appeals, the person who's deciding whether to prosecute those are often all white people, right? And you've got, you cannot combat the racism in the procedure without combating the racism in the, the legal academy and in and who is actually prosecuting cases. Um, so it's, it's very, very important to, you know, it's not enough just to have Katanji Brown Jackson on the Supreme Court. You've got to have people of color at every stage of litigation to eradicate this racism. Because if we don't, we see that the appeal can turn on something as simple as federalism, <laughs> right? This man yeah, and, and a die. person could die. Like, a literally, a person could die because of all of this. Like, if that doesn't move us listeners, like, what will? Like, with all this c- compelling evidence, and we're willing to let a person die? Mm-hmm. Like, For I'm procedure. sorry. Right. All right, now, Brandon, you've got another case that you're going to talk about, and you're going to talk about Jones v. Hendricks. And I'll keep so, it short for you. I'm going to keep it a Jones v. Hendricks short because it's similar to the case Alex mentioned, which is very much about procedure. All right. So let me set the stage. OK. Jones v. Hendricks is very much a commentary on the carceral state. OK. The issue straightforward. Can people who are actually innocent of the, of the underlying crime they were convicted of get access to courts to order their freedom? Okay, like I'm actually innocent, sitting in in, in a cage. Hey, court, can you let me out? Like that's literally the question here. The setup is straightforward. Okay, Marcus D'Angelo Jones was convicted for being a felon in possession of a firearm. The statute carries with it a potential sentence of ten years, and the average sentence a sentencing court usually gives around five years and four months for that conviction. And the government, uh, and the government hands uh, this card out like candy in discriminatory ways. For example, in 2019, around 70,000 cases were reported to the U.S. Sentencing Commission charging felon in possession of a firearm. 55% were brought against black men, okay? So Jones argued that he did not know his status as a felon. I didn't know I was a felon. Case law at the time in the Eighth Circuit said that knowledge of your actual status did not matter. Jones is sent back to prison. 
The Supreme Court then, in a case called Rahib, held that the government must prove a person knew they were prohibited from possessing a firearm. Without such proof, you are legally innocent. Jones goes back to the district court and says, free me, free me. I am legally innocent of a crime that I have to sit in prison for another five plus years. Court says, no, I do not have jurisdiction to hear your actual innocence claim. The court literally says, get out. Talk about the sunken place. If you did not get that reference, you need to step your movie game up. That's the movie. Get out. Okay. <laughs> A few quick notes. First, actual innocence is rarely at issue in these cases, although it is in this case. Okay. The question is whether the district court can even assess here at the actual innocence substantive claim. Okay. Second, EDPA. EDPA is straight trash. It's draconian and needs to be abolished. Indeed, I've been contacted by several U.S. senators and representatives to draft a statute that's effectively abolishing EDPA. Don't worry, I'm on it, okay? So how EDPA works is this. Person's convicted of a crime. They have a direct appeal. That direct appeal almost always raises issues concerning evidentiary issues and sentencing determinations. They lose. They then filed their first collateral motion under 28 U.S.C. 2255. That motion normally raises ineffective assistance of counsel claims. That all happened in the Jones case. The question becomes, can Jones file a successive, a second petition under 2255 to raise the actual innocence claim? According to the leading expert in this area of the law, Yes, viewers, that would be me. The answer is yes, and I filed an amicus brief in this case. I've also written the leading uh, piece on this issue uh, in the Georgetown Law Journal called Saving Justice. My argument's simple. The savings clause allows Jones to do so. Why? Because the plain text says so, and any other interpretation will raise foundational constitutional questions, including separation of powers and due process concerns. That is this. People innocent of a crime should have access to courts to grant them their freedom. If habeas means anything, it should mean that the government cannot put or keep people determined to be innocent of a crime in prison cages. Remarkably, the government agrees with my interpretation in this case. Jones should have access to the court to determine whether he is actually innocent. The circuits are split whether the savings clause grants court's power to hear actual innocence cases. So you're wondering, Carlos and listeners, who started this split? None other than Justice Gorsuch, then Judge Gorsuch. So we know how he is going to vote. Here's what he said in that case. It's called Prost the case, okay? He says this, perhaps, this is quoting him now, perhaps no criminal justice system in history can convincingly claim to have succeeded entirely and preventing the conviction of the innocent. Mr. Prost, who was the defendant in the case, final criminal conviction must remain just that. Final. Unquote. Okay? Here's an actually innocent person. He says, final, just that. Okay? So this callousness, though, is not unprecedented and is indeed part of the conservative movement's playbook, as Justice Scalia once said that executing innocent people does not violate the Constitution. So my prediction, innocent people will remain in cages 
And their only avenue of relief then would be President Biden through his pardon commutation powers. He needs to use them. The carceral court will remain undefeated in this case. Wow. So I want you to talk a little bit more about Biden's pardon power, actually. Um, and, and how that can be used. Cause I mean, he hasn't been using it as much as other, and this is a detour. So I apologize for the detour. It's he not a detour. Been... Cause it's actually right. It, it, right. There's the court. <laughs> That's only three branches. Then there's the executive and then there's Congress and each of them, right. This is interplay. So it's, the, uh, it's a great question. Well, what has Biden been doing? The truth is, you know, the presidents are terrible in terms of using their powers especially as they always comment like, oh yeah, the criminal legal system. For example, Biden made comments about the gross disparities in drug sentencing and how people with, you know, three strikes, we should be thinking about, you know, what their sentencings are and stuff like that. He's done very little. He could do a lot more. What is his powers? He literally could, if he wants, he could today say, Jones, you're a free man. He could do that if he wants to, if he wanted to. And he could do that in so many of these cases under his power. The question becomes, well, is it politically sound or not, right? Like, all right, but that should never be the question, right? And because part of, you know, what I'm thinking about here is the movie, The Great Debaters, okay? If your viewers haven't watched, it's a little older, it stars Denzel Washington. It's a great movie in many respects. It's about kind of this all black school uh, has this black debating team that, you know, is undefeated. They're amazing, right? And they go up and debate the all white Harvard University and they just dominated. But I'm reminded of, you know, a, a character in there in, in which she says, and I may be missing a quote, but she says something like this, like the time for justice, the time for freedom and the time for equality is always, is always right now, right? And that should be our kind of guiding principle in these types of cases. It's, you can commute this person if you want to. We all know how felon and possession statutes are being used. They're racialized. I gave you the stats. Like, you're telling me, like, it, it, it's just... It's, just a, it's a carceral state essentially continually to replicate itself. And we allow it to. And Biden could just say, not going to happen if he wanted to. He hasn't. He should use his powers. We as voters who decide to vote for him should be demanding as such. Um, and I think that's just the answer to the question. Like, can Biden do more? Yes, he absolutely can. He has extraordinary power he could be using right now. All right, Alex, what do you think about this Jones case? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with Brandon on a lot of this. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's, to me, and I also agree with his opinions about EDPA, um, for the record, <laughs> um, <laughs> EDPA's not good. Um, it's just, it's really bad. Um, you know, when I learned EDPA, the person who taught me about EDPA, you know, years ago when I was a law student, basically summed it up as, you lose. Um, like, that's what he said. He was like, you lose. Um, so, cool. Look, I, I just I worry that that we see these patterns where cases and, and this is consistent with the pattern I mentioned in Reed, right? With with the Shin case, where you see the court and courts making it harder and harder to actually litigate and get to the merits of these important issues. Um, right. It's something I'm I'm working on in my research now. Like, why should the why why would the court actually have to worry about getting to the merits when it can take this procedural stuff? And go, you know what? We don't actually have to do any of it. Um, and that's really troubling, right? It is 
you know, I agree with you that students should really, really understand procedure because that stuff matters so much. Um, but the problem is, is that you have these situations where these sort of procedural games and, and end up making us not actually get to the merits or deal with constitutional issues. And that is literally the, the federal judiciary's job is to get involved with this constitutional. Like, that is literally your job. I get Can I, can I, pick, Alex, can I pick on that point? Because it's a brilliant point real quick. And let me tell, I like to tell stories, right? I think the race theory, we engage in storytelling in it. So let me tell you your viewers a story on Alex's point being, this is judiciary's job, okay? In the late 90s, the chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit um, is Judge Wilkinson, okay? J. Harvey Wilkinson, all right? There were two open seats, literally open seats on the Fourth Circuit, meaning the president could appoint judges for these two open seats. All right. Judge Wilkinson testifies before the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee that, hey, look, we don't need two more judges. We don't need it. We're good. Our workflow is good. Indeed, adding two more may essentially mess up our collegiality of the bench. OK, so he writes all of this like we're good. We have plenty of resources. We don't need more people. He literally right. He testifies to this point. Okay, so what essentially happened with his testimony? Well, it says Clinton was thinking about appointing a judge at the time. The Fourth Circuit never. Okay, I'm repeating, viewers, never had a black jurist. Meaning it was a segregation bench. Never had a black juror when the Fourth Circuit has a significant black population of people who live within the Fourth Circuit. Okay, so he writes this testifying to the Senate Judicial Committee. How is that used? Well, Clinton was thinking about appointing, at the time, a black jurist. The black jurist's name is Judge Wynn. Okay, Judge Wynn is now in the force. He joined because of Obama, not because of Clinton. The reason why he wasn't appointed by Clinton was because of Wilkinson's letter. So Senator Jesse Helms was like, no, no, President uh, um, um, Clinton, you should not be appointing people because the chief judge said you don't need more people. So we're not, I'm not, so I'm going to essentially, uh, you know, every candidate you suggest, I'm going to essentially blue slip them. No, we don't need them. Okay. And you're like, well, why does this all matter? Because simultaneously, as he's uh, testifying, Judge Wilkinson, to these points, it gets to Alex's point. He's writing in opinions about finality. Like, no, 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 no. You can't have relief, person. The reason why I can't have relief is because the floodgates will open. The floodgates were open and we couldn't handle these cases. Think about that for a minute. He's denying relief to people. We know what these people look like, mostly black and brown, saying, if we grant you relief, the floodgates will open, while writing and testifying, saying we don't need any more resources for two open seats. Think about this for a minute. This is literally judi the judiciary shrinking courts to, for, to advance conservative agendas. This just stunned all of us. Because Alex is right. Like, that is their job. Like, their job is literally to hear these cases and get to the merits of these cases and stop hiding behind the fig leaf of finality. Because that's exactly what it is. All right. And tell the viewers, what are the states in the Fourth Circuit? Because I think it's significant um, yeah, so how it's, long it took. Yeah. yeah. So it's South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland. Okay. Predominantly Black uh, uh, population, I think it's, you could estimate between 25 to 35% of the entire Fourth Circuit, I think, is Black people. And there was no Black judges until the judge I clerked for was a recess appointment, Judge Gregory, in 2000. 
All right, Alex, other thoughts before I ask another I, question? Yeah, I just, I think the, you know, I, I just worry about this idea that finality is a, and sort of preserving this idea that the state has such an important interest in convictions and finality. And look, they do, okay? Um, sure, I'll recognize that's an important interest. But I think the problem is, right, is that the court are often overlooking the fact that the states should frankly also have compelling interest in vindicating constitutional rights, in protecting those constitutional rights, and in ensuring that justice is served. And so that interest, in my view, is equally as compelling as finality, and it's often overlooked. Um, and so, yes, these cases seem like they're about these sort of really niche procedure um, issues, but they're really important because they're affecting the overall fairness of the criminal legal system, which is a really significant part, right, of, of the United States. Um, and it affects everybody, even if it may not do it immediately, it will. Well, and I just think, you you know, whenever I talk about one reason I don't teach criminal law <laughs> and I don't teach constitutional law is because it always makes me so angry uh, because, you know, in my office. It's sad. Office, like, I'm sorry, Carl, it's sad. Like, angry yeah. and just sad. Like, I'm tired of watching Black people, like, literally could be innocent of a crime sitting in prison or being sentenced to death. Like, I am sad, right? Like, at the end of the day, I'm angry, but I'm also sad. Like, I am this, like, what, when are we fully going to be recognized as citizens in all aspects? When are we going to, right? Like, the criminal legal system, right, it's operating the way it was designed, Right, and it's racial from its operation all the way to today. That's designed that way. But this is why we have these outcomes that we're trying on the back end to correct. And the question is, should we be able to correct them at its core? The answer in both cases we just previewed is the answer should be yes. Yes. Why? Because we don't we shouldn't want innocent people dying or sitting in cages. We shouldn't want that. As a society, we shouldn't want that. Well, and 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 you know, one thing I've explored in my research is clearly we must want it. Right. We have to want it if that's the outcome that we have. You know, this is the system that someone wants, you know, and, and I feel like it doesn't matter which party either. Right. You know, Clinton could have could, could have forced the issue and appointed two more justices. Biden could be pardoning people. Um, there is some interest on both sides of both. keeping certain both sides of keeping certain people incarcerated. And we have to, like, accept that reality and acknowledge it. In order to move forward. I mean, now I can go all the way in about who's behind EPA, who's been signing this stuff in the law, the crime bills. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to you, Bill Clinton. Come on. Like, come on. Yeah. Like, your friends aren't your friends, which is, you know, what, what, I, what I also say to my students. Don't look at somebody and see whether there's a D or an R after their name and assume that's someone who advances your interests. You've got to dig deeper and see what the history is and see what it is that they're doing and push these politicians that we vote for to advance our ideas and our principles. Cause you know, a lot of folks are complacent about the politics, but you know, that's the start. More people got to get in law school and get in the right kind of positions when they practice. You know, it takes a full hundred percent effort from all fronts and you really can't choose to sit and ignore the politics. You also can't ignore the court, which was kind of the point of this episode. That's exactly right? Right. These, these little niche procedural issues are a big deal to everyday people. All right. So the last segment I want to talk about future policies and speculations and what we think the future can hold. Sometimes this gets positive. <laughs> Sometimes it just gets more doom scrolling. So we'll see. All right, Brandon, you have talked about reforming the judiciary and the constitution itself. 
do you think the climate is right for your types of radical reforms? Are we there yet? So a few things. One, I'm happy to report, and it was recently announced that I'm now a columnist for the Boston Globes, The Emancipator. So I'm really excited to kind of pursue these uh, ideas further. I've written extensively about them, um, and you know, the, your listeners could read them. To get to your heart of your question, you know, is the time now? You know, part of it is, it's, is it likely going to happen? No, like no. But is the time right? Yes. I go back to the great debaters quote, the time to do what's right is always right now. And that should be our goal. Uh, you know, we should start thinking about it. And I'm happy after hearing two days of oral argument that I think movement, abolition movements in general are going to have uh, someone who's going to hear them on the bench and write down in brilliance, either likely in dissent, as Alex mentioned, kind of the way forward for future generations to follow. Um, but that's probably the likely outcome, but at least I, that gives me some hope, um, is Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She was absolutely stunning and her genius yesterday and on Monday. I think it would help for you to briefly say what your kind of constitutional suggestion is. Yeah, so it gets to the court, you know, everyone says, is the Supreme Court legitimate? Is like this great debate. And my argument is, well, how can it be legitimate when the constitution was designed by only one small part of the population, white property owning men? Like, None of us on this call today, insights, thinking, feelings, thoughts, visions are reflected in the constitution itself. It isn't at all. Until like, and then you have the radical uh, um, uh, reconstruction the abolition amendments, as I say, and how have they been interpreted? They've been interpreted historically, literally by white men who sit on the Supreme Court. So we have to ask ourselves, like when we start thinking about like, should we be making a case to at least come up with a new constitution and what should that look like? And I have advanced ideas of what that possibly should look like. We should be thinking about, is the Supreme Court representative of us as a body? Do we, should it be expanded? Should the lower courts be expanded? Which everyone agrees on that they should be expanded. Like there's no disagreement about lower court, meaning the federal appellate courts and the federal district courts. There isn't disagreement unless like, your candidate's not in office, right? Like that's when disagreement comes. Like, I don't have the power. So no, I don't like the idea anymore. But everyone agrees just as, as an administrative matter, the population has grown since the last time the courts was expanded. It should be expanded again. So like, those are some of the ideas that I think we really need to be talking about. And at a minimum, it's my sincere hope that the listeners um, read, learn this stuff, and join a movement and, and demand change. We all deserve that. All right, Alex, I'm going to have you take us out and let us know you've written extensively about the death penalty. Do you think that we could get the change in the court that we need to either end the death penalty or to make it more humane? Yeah, sure. So first, I will say that I don't think there's actually a way to make the death penalty more humane in any way, shape or form. Um, the death penalty is uh, I, I oppose it on many, many grounds, but it's dehumanizing to most people involved with it. It's an affront to human dignity, um, and that includes the people who carry out executions, um, not just the people being executed, everybody involved. Um, the court as it's currently configured, no, I'm not optimistic. Um, like I said, they seem to be much more willing to zip through litigation and, and get it through so states can execute. I think the most important thing to do is to do what happened in Virginia um, this past year, which is push for reform at the state level. Um, and, and for people who, you know, are lawyers in capital cases and on appeals is to do what, what the Virginia defenders did and work 
incredibly hard um, and incredibly successfully to create that kind of grassroots level change that puts pressure on state legislatures to end the Right. And I agree with you. There is no such thing as a humane, de- humane death penalty. Um, I think it's a mark on our lack of civility as a civilization and mm-hmm. as a country that we still have the death penalty. Um, and there aren't many countries that still do. That's also worth noting. Right. All right. So I want to thank both of them for being here today, both Alex and Brandon. Um, you can see that we have a good time at WNL. This is like what our lunches are like. <laughs> so, um, except actually probably more cursing and a lot more rowdy right? Uh, Thank you all for tuning in to Get In Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcasts anywhere podcasts are played, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our Voice America network. And I also upload them to the YouTube channel. Feel free to reach out to me through the show page or on social media. I'm at Carla C. And both Alex and Brandon are on social media. And you can find their bios on their school websites. That's probably the easiest way. Alex is at St. Mary's and Brandon is with me at Washington and Lee. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.